Love that snappy little intro, like the music and the graphic. So uh, Kira Cup put that together for me. So thank you, Kira. Looks really good and sounds good as well. And I'm looking at this picture behind me and realizing I've changed a little bit since then. The six weeks of COVID isolation have uh, encouraged a little growth here. I'm going to have to get that taken care of. The good news is I can get it taken care of very soon. Uh our barber shops in Sevier County and hair salons, nail salons are all going to be allowed to open next Wednesday. So looking forward to getting in, getting in there, getting a trim and uh, losing a little of this fuzz off of my face. Uh, my wife is looking forward to the haircut. She says it's getting a little bit wild. I don't know. I've got hair. At my age, having hair is a good thing. So not going to worry too much about it. So I hope all of you have had a great week. Uh, it's been an interesting week. A lot of different things going on. Uh, we talked about it on the show, a lot of the sports stuff, the uh, NFL draft and where the Vols went on that. We can also talk about Joe Burrow if you want to talk about that and where he went. I've got my uh, comments open and hopefully they are working. So we will go there. Uh, Vols are on a tear recruiting. They've jumped from number 17 in uh, recruiting up to number three behind only Florida in the SEC. So that's a really good job by Coach Pruitt and his staff and uh, bodes well for the coming season. We talked a little bit about Major League Baseball. Some very unusual realigning going on for a season if they get rid of the American League and the National League. And there also may be some bad blood because of the uh, cheating scandal from last year. And uh, some teams may uh, have some interesting games uh, during this uh, realigned season. So if they do wind up splitting into three regions, um, it's going to be really interesting. It's going to be an odd year for baseball. And then, of course, uh, NASCAR is going to be racing. They've been racing virtually for the last several weeks, and uh, some of the fans have found that pretty entertaining. I know the drivers appear to be having fun, So, but I'm sure they're ready to get back in the cars and do some real racing. So that's going to be coming up again, like we said on the show, May 17th. And I know our producer, Hannah, is getting ready to post that graphic that I talked about. So that'll be on our Facebook page. And I just want to thank you guys for tuning in to the After Show podcast. Um, again, our podcasts are available on most of the different services between iHeartRadio and Spotify. Pretty much anywhere you can go to find a podcast if you look for us under Morning in the Mountains. You'll find both of our regular shows and these after shows. And uh, you can always just go to uh, your Amazon device and say, Alexa, find me the Morning in the Mountains podcast. And she will get us. So I hope you keep listening. And I hope you enjoyed the show. And this week, it was a really interesting week of shows. Uh, Jim Johnson and James on, the, on Wednesdays, their entertainment show is really taking off. They're getting a lot of good guests. And they're really putting together an interesting show, one that's fun and informative. And as we open back up here in Sevier County, they'll have even more to uh, bring to you as far as which attractions are open 
and all of that good information. Clear up a little bit of confusion. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Tennessee's governor, Bill Lee, announced that he was going to allow the Safer at Home executive orders to expire. And the local businesses here in Sevier County all took that to mean that they would be allowed to open and uh, go back to business. And most of our shows, the, the theaters, set an opening date of May 9th. And they started making their preparations. They put up their advertising. I don't know if they started selling tickets, but their billboards all said, first show, May 9th, come on in. I know they started setting up seating to maintain social distancing and changing their ticket quantities for the shows. Basically, ready to roll. So as soon as they were allowed, they were going to open up. Then on the 28th, uh, Governor Lee issued a new executive order, executive order number 30. And in that, he said, uh, just a minute, guys. There's some other, some businesses are going to have to remain closed. And among those were theaters, auditoriums, and any of the other entertainment venues. So the theaters, which had thought they were about to open, and had done all their advertising and started putting all this together, were suddenly told, no, you're not going to be opening now, and uh, the executive order runs until the end of May, May 29th. So we're not sure when the theaters are going to open. When Governor Lee issued that new executive order, there was some pushback from the people of Tennessee, and the General Assembly met with him in a conference call that night and the next day he started amending or rather amending is a stronger word than I, than he would prefer but they started uh he started giving dates where some of the prohibited businesses were going to be allowed to open and as an example may 6th which is next week barbershops hair salons and nail salons are going to be allowed to reopen and that makes sense from a lot of different perspectives First off, when you realize the amount of sanitation that hair salons and barbershops have to undergo on a normal day, it's probably one of the safest places to be in the county. And when they exercise their additional precautions, uh, one customer, no waiting in the store, appointments only, and uh, the, uh, hair, the barbers and the uh, stylists will all be masked. It's going to be able, you're going to be able to go get your hair cut, get your beard trimmed without uh, any risk of transmitting an infection either way. And uh, that's a good thing. So he made that decision and very shortly thereafter, he made the decision that dentists could begin offering uh, their services, non-emergency services, also on May 6th. And with the expiration on April 29th of Executive Order 25, hospitals and doctor's offices could begin scheduling non-emergent treatments and procedures. There's a little bit of a misconception about that going around because we thought that the restriction would only be for things like plastic surgery, totally elective procedures. And unfortunately, that wasn't the case. A lot of diagnostic procedures were pushed back and held up uh, 
by that order. Uh, just as an example, I had a procedure scheduled. It's a normal one for gentlemen of my age. One I was not looking forward to, and that's all I want to say about that. And it was postponed, for which I was pretty happy, actually. Um, so, But now I will be able to get that scheduled and go in. Other things, my uh, annual heart checkup was postponed, and uh, skin cancer screening was also postponed. So these procedures, in my case, I'm okay. But for a lot of people, those procedures are what kept track of their condition. And with those being postponed, that presents a real risk to them. So um, they evaluate that risk and decide whether to move forward or not with the procedure. But a lot of them were rescheduled. The problem with this is after six months of putting all of these procedures off, there's going to be a huge backlog because the people who are already scheduled for appointments now, they fill all the blocks, which means all these folks like me whose procedures were uh, postponed are going to try to have to fill in vacancies, vacant slots in the schedule. And hospitals generally and doctor's offices generally don't like a lot of open time in their schedule. And if you've ever been to a doctor's appointment in the last 10 years, you know that. The least hiccup can put everything behind by 45 minutes. So with that type of tight scheduling, working this backlog of tests and procedures in is going to be tricky. Uh, it's going to be difficult, which means it means further delays for these procedures. It, that's, that's what it means. So... Our doctor's offices and hospitals and our testing facilities are going to be booked solid for six to eight months, maybe a year, as they try to deal with this backlog. So people are going to have to be very patient, and the uh, facilities are going to have to practice a little bit of triage. How serious is the case? Um, can we, we may have to bump some existing appointments to get people in who absolutely need to get in. So... By opening that back up, Governor Lee has recognized that this is something that's going to be an issue going forward, and we're going to have to deal with it, and the better, it's better to start now than to wait and let it get worse. So as these businesses come back online, uh, the other thing that we've got to deal with is how many people are going to be willing to travel and you know, are we going to get the tourists in the area that we need? And there's there's no way of knowing really right now. My guess, and it's it's only a guess, it really is, is that a lot of the area folks, and I'm not talking about folks who live here in Sevier County, but Knox County and Blunt County, Anderson County, the uh, Knoxville metro area, we'll see a lot of them coming up in the Smokies. Everybody has been isolated for so long. This is a close destination, and as the businesses and attractions start to open up, we're going to see these people coming in. And it's a double-edged sword, and you have to acknowledge both sides of it. You can't just you know, champion one side without the other. We need the business. We need the money coming in, because this is people's mortgage. This is people's uh, food bill. This is people's power bill. 
if we don't have that money coming in, if we don't have these attractions open and we don't have people working, that has a real human cost that's every bit as real and every bit as devastating as the other side of the picture, which is we still want to make sure that our vulnerable population is maintained safe from COVID-19. So it's a very delicate balancing act. And the people on both sides have legitimate concerns. The key is finding that middle ground where the folks that are have uh, rational concerns about their health and the health of their loved ones can still remain protected. But at the same time, the folks that need to get a paycheck, that need to pay bills, that need to pay rent, that need to get caught up, can go out and earn their living. So it's going to be a balancing act as we walk forward through this path together. The key for us as a community here in Sevier County, in my opinion, is we've got to stop the finger pointing, get all of the overly emotional reactions. It's, it's time to move past that. We don't want to let fear dominate the way we relate to each other. And one of the ways that we can do that is for those of us who are seriously concerned about our health, the health of our families, and the health of our friends, to recognize that we have the power, regardless of what's going on outside, we have the power to take care of ourselves. We can use a mask as necessary. We can use gloves if we feel that's necessary. We can remain isolated if we need to. We can maintain solid social distancing if we need to. Because if we do those things and we do them right, then we are protecting ourselves and we're protecting our families, regardless of what anybody else is doing. And that's the key. That's, that's the key to stopping not just COVID-19, but the flu, colds, any other infectious disease out there. If we take care of ourselves and keep, our, keep ourselves safe from infection, which we can do, then the more of us that do that, the less the disease will spread. So, like we've been saying since uh, day one, um, wash your hands. If you're sick, stay home. If you're vulnerable, stay home. And if you go, have to go out, maintain social distancing. None of that has changed. And in my opinion, none of that should ever change. We should be doing that for ever because we can, and it makes a huge difference. Um, 40, 50 years ago, oh, wait a minute, I'm 40, 50 years old. All right, 70, 80 years ago, I'm old. 70, 80 years ago, this was a routine. This was a way of life. We did not have vaccines. We were vulnerable to a lot of diseases, and we had plans and processes that we developed locally to deal with it. The quarantine power, if somebody was sick, we made them stay home, and they stayed home. If it was a non-serious illness, like chicken pox, if one kid in the family got chicken pox, you had a chicken pox party, and everybody got it. So you got it, you got over it, and you went on about your life. So, again, as back in the 20s and 30s, as a disease would make its way through a community, 
that's what they would do. They would get it, they would get over it, and then they would move on. More serious diseases, obviously, that's when you go into the full-on quarantine and you keep the people who are infected or who have been exposed, you keep them safe. You keep them isolated so they don't have a chance to spread the contagion. We're coming to a point in time where that is going to be the norm again. Uh, I don't know how many of you, you know, follow medical news, but antibiotics is, have been a huge concern for a little over a decade, maybe a little bit more than that now, because the diseases that we've developed these antibiotics to fight are now becoming immune to our antibiotics. MRSA is a great example of that. It's a staph infection that has become immune to the antibiotics that we usually use to stop these staph infections, which means that we don't have anything to fight it with. We're having to come up with new and more powerful antibiotics all the time to try to stay ahead of these diseases. And eventually, there's a good chance that we won't stay ahead and we will start developing these uh, antibiotic-resistant strains of diseases like pneumonia, uh, like staph, like strep, um, some of the other diseases. And when they become antibiotic-resistant, then we're back to where we were in the late 1800s, early 1900s, where they were killer diseases. So this is something that we need to be aware of. And this is why I said that, in my opinion, these practices that we're talking about now, washing your hands, social distance, stay home if, if you're sick, it's going to become ingrained in the American consciousness. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing. We, we should have been there already. So in a way, COVID-19 is a blessing in that it wasn't as serious as we were initially afraid it was going to be. And that's a blessing. But it gives us a warning shot. It, tells, it gives us something to let us know that we need to be aware of the power of these little bitty tiny diseases, these little bitty tiny germs, these bacteria and viruses, and respect that and live our lives with a respect for that and understand we need to start following these hygienic practices in order to avoid some really, really nasty pandemics that could be coming around. So this is a wake-up call. It is a great opportunity for us to step back and six months from now, nine months from now, look at the way information came in and how it was processed and how we made decisions based on that information. And then to step back take a look at it and see whether we are, uh, there we go, just checking. And to see what we did right and what we did wrong and try to get it better the next time this happens. So, like I said, great learning opportunity, great way to start to learn how to deal with what could become more common in the future. So as we continue to move forward here in Sevier County, um, one of the great things that we have going for us is we have a low population density. 
And as I've looked at the numbers nationwide, what I've seen, and I'm not the only one that has seen this, uh, many other people have pointed it out, the more dense the population, the more prevalent COVID-19 is, which makes sense. The more you pack people together, the more they're going to spread any disease. So for here in Sevier County, we've got a very low population density, and it has shown in our numbers. Uh, we've had a very, very low infection rate. So the question becomes, when we start bringing lots of people in, when we open up our tourist industry, will that infection rate go up? And it's really up to us. It really is. If we protect ourselves, then I don't expect to see a huge increase in our infection rate. There will be some. And it's one of the things that we have to understand as we move forward. No matter what we do, no matter how long we wait, at some point as we start going back to normal life, we're going to get more infections. Social distancing doesn't kill the virus. It doesn't give the virus a time to die off so it's gone and it'll never bother us again. All that social distancing does is slow the spread. It's still going to spread as far. It's still going to infect the same number of people, but it's going to do it over a longer period of time so that we don't overwhelm our hospitals. So that's the whole purpose of social distancing is to slow it down so we can deal with it so we don't get secondary problems. So it doesn't matter when we start lifting these restrictions. We are going to see an increase in cases. The important question to ask is not, are we going to see an increase, but are we seeing a manageable increase so that we don't overload our healthcare system? And that's what we should be looking for. If we can maintain our infection rate low enough that we're not going to overwhelm our healthcare system, then we're in a great place. That's where we're going to have to be because that's what we're going to be doing eventually anyway. So, well, that was interesting. All right. So as we move forward, again, we keep ourselves safe. We keep our family safe. We wash our hands and so on. We start looking at how this is going to affect some of the activities that we do. And I will start with going out to eat at a restaurant because we had an interesting story here in Sevier County uh, two days ago. A family of seven went into one of our local restaurants. They were seated, but before they were able to order, the manager came out and told them they would either have to break their party into two or they would have to leave because the state guideline as set up by the governor said no parties larger than six could sit at a restaurant. So this is a mom, a dad, and their five kids. They've been living in the same house, exposed to the same germs, so there is no probability of cross-contamination within that table. The rule of six was established to prevent that situation, cross-contamination from large parties getting together. Some may be infected, some may not, so you don't want them to group together at a table. I understand that. This family already shared all the same exposures, so that was not a factor in this case. More to the point, by splitting them into two tables, now you've got two groups 
who may or may not be infected, but either one group is infected or, or either both groups are infected or both groups aren't infected. So you've potentially doubled the size of your infectious group by separating them. That doesn't make sense. The family opted to get up and leave since they couldn't eat together. They didn't want to stay there. That's fine. That's their choice. But what I'm pointing out is when you're making rules at a high level, like the governor for the entire state, it's very difficult to build that rule in such a way that it allows discretion so that you can evaluate locally whether or not you need to split that family up. Obviously, for all practical purposes, for disease transmission, for cleanup, ease of sanitation, he should have left that family together. That would have been the safe way to go. But because the rule was written up in Nashville by someone who wasn't there and couldn't see it and couldn't evaluate the situation, the family didn't get to eat. They got put through an embarrassing uh, situation. The restaurant manager got put in the tough situation of telling them to either split up their party or leave, and then the restaurant lost the business. And not only that business, but as this story got uh, play on the Internet, there's a lot of people saying they will not eat not only at that restaurant, but any of the restaurants owned by the same chain. So the whole point of this is it's very difficult to make rules at a high level so we want to get to the point where the governor no longer feels that it's necessary for him to make those rules. That we get to make those rules at our level because we can make them where they make sense. If I was a manager of a restaurant and I had a family of come, come in and sit down, a family of seven, I would seat them together. I might seat them further away from any other group, but I would seat them together knowing that they're already... Uh, sharing the same level of infection, whatever it may be. So I keep them together. They're not posing any additional risk to themselves, and they're not posing any risk to anybody else. That just makes sense. When we have that ability to have discretion, then we can make decisions that make sense. So let's move this into another activity. Uh, going hiking. The smoking's about to open up, and we're going to go up, and we're going to walk a trail. Very first step in my mind, is I'm not going to pick a popular trail because there's going to be a lot of people on there and I don't want to be around a lot of people right now. So I'm going to find some of the hidden gems in the Smokies and uh, maybe a show or two on that coming up in our very near future where I'm not going to be around a whole lot of people. When I'm on the trail and I'm hiking, if there's someone coming the other way, Normal trail courtesy is you step to the right, they step to the right, you maintain a distance between you, and you let each other pass, which is social distancing. It's everything you need to do. So when we follow common trail etiquette, then we're already doing our social distancing. Now, if you stop and talk to strangers and get up into close talking space and then force people to sidle around you, now, now there's going to be some issues. So we want to make sure we don't do that. So we stay aware of what we're doing, and we make sure that we're keeping ourselves and the people around us safe. And we can go on a trail in the Smokies, hike, get outside, enjoy the sunshine, enjoy the fresh air, enjoy the natural beauty of our area without increasing our risk or anybody else's risk. And that's kind of where I'm going to close on this one, is understanding that as long as we take personal responsibility for ourselves and our safety. 
and then we look out for the safety of the people around us, then we can go about pretty much all of our normal activities without increasing the risk of infection. So if we can do that, yes, we will see a bump. There's no getting around it. It's going to happen at some point or another. But it will be a manageable bump, one that we're used to dealing with <clears throat> with other issues like the flu or common colds or uh, anytime anything's running around in the schools. We know how to deal with this. So that's all we've got to do. We deal with it. We move on. And next year, when it gets cold again, or this winter, when it gets cold again, we may see a resurgence in COVID-19 cases. Um, oh, I do want to add one piece of good news. Uh, I was looking at a story out of uh, South Korea because they noted a lot of, and by a lot, I mean, uh, I think it was 200 people who had already been exposed to COVID-19, who had had the disease and who had been cleared, tested positive for it, looking like they had been reinfected. And of course, huge major alarms on that. The, uh, they looked into those cases and what they found was the test was responding to inactive bits of viral RNA as opposed to DNA that were left behind by the virus. They weren't active, they weren't, didn't represent an active infection, so more or less it's a false positive. Now, there have been other places that have seen uh, reinfection, so that's not 100% of the answer, but it does represent a portion of that answer that some of these, where it appears to be people have been reinfected, are false positives, which is good, because we really want to know that once exposed, we have immunity. And why this is so important is that's the principle that a vaccine is based on. It tricks your body into thinking it's been exposed. You develop the immunity based on the vaccine and you never get the disease. If you don't get immunity from exposure, then that makes it extraordinarily difficult to devise a vaccine. So, We'll keep watching that, keep seeing the developments and what's going on with that. But while we wait and understand vaccine is probably four years away at best, if we find one, we have not been able to get a vaccine for SARS. Part of that is because SARS went around once and didn't come around again. So they uh, scaled back the research. It's still ongoing, but they still haven't come up with a vaccine for it yet. And SARS is a coronavirus, just like uh, the virus that causes COVID-19. So I'm not holding out a whole lot of hope for a vaccine in the near future, which is why my emphasis is on learning to live with COVID-19 rather than holding my breath, waiting for something that may not happen. So, all right, that's my after show podcast, and I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope you got some good information out of it. Um, remember that next week we will be back Monday through Friday with our Morning in the Mountains show with the whole crew, Kira on Monday, then uh, Santa and Mrs. Claus on Tuesday. Wednesday we'll have Jim and James in here with their entertainment show. Thursday, Frank Murphy with Kira. And then I'll be back here on Friday talking about sports because I finally have something to talk about. That's wonderful. All right, everybody, thanks for listening. 
enjoyed it. I hope you see you again next week and y'all have a safe weekend. Get out and have some fun.